The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. There's nothing scarier than having a severe mental health condition at work. That's something one of my guests today, Jimmy Horowitz, said about what it's like disclosing a mental health issue at a big job, at a big company, in the limelight. Horowitz is vice chairman of business affairs and operations for NBC Universal, which means he deals with the business side of a very creative media company with a $148 billion market cap. Trained as a lawyer, he oversees major deals for the network and the streaming service Peacock, and he's negotiated big movie deals as well. A quick Google search turns up pictures of him with everyone from The Rock to Reese Witherspoon. In short, Jimmy has a high-stakes job. And he shares that while many people sort of expect creatives to be a little more up and down, maybe even struggle with their mental health, the stigma is definitely there on the business side of things. It's a stigma he felt acutely in 2019, pre-pandemic. That's when a struggle with depression, the first of his life, came pouring in, and he didn't know where to turn. He kept it a secret. We'll hear his story today, and we're also joined by Emily Anhalt, a clinical psychologist with a background in entrepreneurship and leadership. Emily is working on a different approach to mental health, thinking about it more like going to the gym, helping us get fit. And she's working with Jimmy and the team at NBC Universal to figure out how to navigate mental health conversations and change at work. It's really great when she and Jimmy dive into how to do it right. Before I go to the show, though, I have to tell you, The Anxious Achiever, the book, is three weeks out from being published, April 11th. I would so, so, so love it. If you want to buy the book, pre-order it now, wherever you get your books, whether it's on a big site like Amazon or at your local bookstore through a site like bookshop.org. Pre-orders mean everything. And so, if you're a fan of The Anxious Achiever and you want to support pre-order today. Thank you so much. Now, on with the show. So, Jimmy, take us back to 2019. What was work like for you, and how did things feel for you internally? Well, it's funny. I, I always say to people, I think for most people, 2020 was the worst year of their life, and I always say 2020 was definitely not the worst year of my life, which is just to say that in 2019, I had had some, uh, some loss in my life personally, and I wouldn't say that that was necessarily the thing, but in the fall of 2019, I just found myself feeling things I had never experienced before, and I don't even know that I would have been able to define it until it didn't stop, and I went asked my therapist what was going on, and she said, I think that you're suffering from depression. So it was not something I was familiar with, not something I'd experienced before, and not something that really was in my family. And so it was overwhelming and very, very, very challenging to know what to do. And the fact is that as a person in my position, 
and I've written about this, the last thing you want to do when you're in my job, not just the leadership part, but I'm responsible for money, for, you know, for our balance sheet. And the idea that I would be able to disclose that I was suffering in this way was very scary. And I really had no way to do that. And so I just dealt with it on my own. I basically worked in my office, I would think, for about six months with the door closed and just tried to avoid interaction with people. And something that happens when when you're going through something like this is you realize everyone's so busy and they're also not equipped. So really, I don't know how many people noticed. There was only one person who ever asked me if I was okay during that whole time. And it was someone I had gone to a program called the Hoffman Institute, the Hoffman Process um, in 2017. And it was a person who I knew had also gone. So it's something that makes you very aware and very empathetic. And only one person asked me and I didn't even tell him. And I have to say that, you know, my story is the better one, the, the miraculous one, because I found a doctor who put me on the right medication and it changed everything because when you're on the wrong medication, which we all know trial and error is part of the challenge of depression because there is no do this and you'll be better. It makes you more anxious. You get worse when you take something and it's not working. And I can tell both of you and your listeners, I start every time I say this, I feel it like I feel it right now. Like those feelings of anxiousness of what that was like to not know if you were ever going to get better. Oh, God. It's terrifying. It's You just hit it. It's that feeling of, am I going to feel this way the rest of my life? Am I going to lose everything because I feel this way? And we all know on this call that we've lost people because of exactly that, because you just can't take another day. And there's no question, if you suffer from depression at some point, you have thoughts that go through your head. I luckily didn't have those thoughts, but I had all these thoughts of like, is this ever going to go away? I had a bit of a, of a miracle happen to me, which I want to tell your listeners, because to me, it's the single most important thing that happened, which is I went to a doctor who said, I'm going to give you a DNA test because I don't know if you can handle the SSRI that you're taking. And a week later, she called me and said, all the things that you've taken will not work for you. And she put me on a completely different kind of medicine. And probably in about two weeks, I started feeling better. And so this was now January of 2020. And by the middle of February, I was feeling almost back to myself and the feeling of relief and just the exhale that you can do when that happens is indescribable. And then the pandemic hit. So <laughs> that's what happened for me. And again, I know how lucky I am that I have resources, that I have the ability to go and find a doctor that not everyone has, that I got to get a test that is not covered by insurance. These are things that are big challenges that I'm very concerned about because it shouldn't be that there's access for some of us and not for others. Let's talk a little bit. First of all, it, it sounds like you were a pretty mentally healthy guy. You were, it sounds like you were in therapy before the depression hit. You had gone to the Hoffman Institute. And yet you said that for you, you didn't really know that what you were feeling was, was depression. There was a big difference between the kinds of things that I had as challenges as a person. And to say it, I've had challenges for most of my life, but they were always things that even at times where I felt that I really needed help, I don't think I ever felt I was at a point where I was helpless or hopeless. And so 
even though I've, I've been open to and certainly have been someone who's been going to therapy for most of my life, it was around issues of satisfaction in my life, how to find more joy and happiness, and whether those things were part of what led to this. It's hard to say when you have bigger things happen to you that put you into a different headspace, but I just had never felt this way. You know, it's, it was for me, it was a very physical manifestation of discomfort where the others were always very much, you know, mental or emotional. I mean, I think those of us who are anxious achievers, and I don't know if you identify with with that appellation, but, you know, we we think of ourselves as really high energy and we are so productive. We're so successful that it, the idea of then feeling depressed, feeling like we're slow and and hopeless can feel really antithetical to how we've lived a lot of our lives. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I would say I I would thought like, why me? Why is this happening to me? I think there were a lot of things that got to me to a place where I just wanted it to stop. I don't think I would ever use that term to describe myself, but in thinking about it, you know, there's this this thing I've always remembered. We had a very longtime boss uh, at the company, Ron Meyer, who used who was incredibly successful, and he used to say, I wake up every day thinking, well, when am I going to get found out? You know, like that's then the, the, the imposter syndrome of like, when am I going to get found out? And I do think a bit of that seeps in for someone like me who I was not the most ambitious person. I didn't set out to do this. I didn't say I want to be this person. I really just went to law school and got a job and then things just kept happening. And I wanted to be successful in my life. I think I was raised to, to feel like that was important. But I never had the ambition that I think certain people have. And so when you get to a place of success and when people tell you that, look at how successful you are and I want to do what you do. And you talk to younger people who ask how, you know, about your career. I think I would have a bit of a feeling of like, I'm not sure how I got here. And so maybe that is a bit of an anxious achiever in the sense of, I don't think I deserved it. I think I earned it from hard work and a lot of luck along the way. But I think that term is an appropriate one for a lot of us who aren't driven to success. Interesting. Emily, I, I'd love to hear your reflections on what Jimmy's saying. And with other people in high positions who you've worked with, does this feel familiar at all? What I really appreciated hearing from Jimmy is the recognition of how his privilege played a role in the whole journey. And he's been so good about that from day one. And I think it's something that leaders should be really thoughtful about because what is available in the world of mental health to those of us with privilege is a completely different thing than what the vast majority of people have access to. And just recognizing that makes such a huge difference. And I've seen the difference it makes even just in seeing people respond to Jimmy, that there is a recognition that, you know, we're, we're all in the same ocean, but we're on really different kinds of boats. And so we're weathering the storm in, in really different ways. So I just really appreciate that about Jimmy. And the other thing that I think has been unique is his willingness to tell his story. And something that we talk about a lot at COA is this concept of boundary vulnerability. And Maura, we've talked about this before. Yeah. Boundary vulnerability. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's the idea that we should share enough of ourselves and what we're going through that we invite connection and that we get the support that we need. 
without sharing so much that we ask our colleagues to be our therapists, which they cannot be, and without sharing so much that we wake up with an emotional hangover and wish that we hadn't been more vulnerable than the other person was in a position to catch us in. And I feel like Jimmy has struck this balance so beautifully, and I think that's what I would really hope for as other leaders think about leaning into this space of telling their own story, which is, you know, the way Jimmy talks about it, you can relate to him. I think it helps you feel understood and less alone. And at the same time, I've never felt left like it's anyone else's responsibility to to clean things up. And that's a really hard balance to strike and an important one as leaders start to open this discussion for their own teams. I mean, Jimmy, I would imagine your decision to talk about your depression was not something you took lightly, given your position in the world. No, no. In fact, it really was a product of feeling that, you know, what we had gone through the previous year, this was somewhere in the middle to the third quarter of of 2021. Our company, like many, were were struggling with working from home, uh, with the social reckoning that had happened with George Floyd. And these things were just colliding with each other. And we really did. We, I think it was, it was for us, uh, DEI has been something that we have prioritized. And so it wasn't just then, but we realized that everything had changed. And so the efforts, I'm sure, at Mac and many companies really did amplify and we really did lean in in a very different way and started, you know, different work within the company. And at some point in the beginning of, of 2021, after having been in it for about a year, something happened where we just started realizing the epidemic of mental health in our workplace. You know, even though we were working from home, we just started recognizing that it was such a burden on people. And at some point we were having a conversation and I said, if we want to be inclusive as a workplace, how are we not talking about this issue? (laughs) How is this not one of the things I understand these other, these other challenges that we were, we were facing and taking head on. And everybody really sort of, you know, said, you're right. We were very lucky to find Emily. If you haven't seen it, it someone on our team had, had seen her TED Talk, which is amazing. And we contacted her about trying to figure out how do we talk about this? How do we start? How do we engage with our workplace? And we realized, you know, I couldn't do this. I mean, someone said, we'd like you to be the executive sponsor. And I realized, how can I do that and, and have this, let's call it secret? So... I shared it with the HR person that I work very closely with, who has been leading us in in a lot of this work. And I said, I'm going to tell Donna Langley, our chairman, who I've worked with for over 20 years. And she and I went to dinner and I told her. And she said what most people in that conversation, I think, would say, which is, I knew there was something going on for you. I just didn't know what it was. And of course, didn't know how to ask. And therein lies the dilemma, right? Because it isn't easy to notice and it's hard to ask. And what Emily is helping us with is exactly that. How do you have the conversation? How do you ask in a way that isn't too personal? And how do you not cross those boundaries? And I will tell you that even in small ways, she has helped us so incredibly. One great example is that she recommended that if if you're going to be out of the office and you're going to put it on, you know, on your email or to say that you're out of the office, don't say you're taking a personal day. If you are taking a day for mental health, say it. Say, I'm, I'm out of the office today taking mental health day. I want to be the best version of myself at work and I, and I need a day. And people are doing it. And I do it. And 
it's amazing how just something like that allows people to be upfront about something that they otherwise wouldn't. And to say, I have a doctor's appointment, I'm taking a day off, saying I'm taking a mental health day is really powerful. And I think as people start seeing it, other people are feeling safe to do it themselves. And something that small is really a way to start to normalize this issue in your in your company. You know, the idea, you know, Jimmy, you had worked with her for 20 years and she still felt like that was a boundary she felt very anxious about crossing, asking you. Emily, how do colleagues talk about this with each other? Like, what do you recommend? It's tough because I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer here. It depends on the relationship that they have and how safe they feel with each other. It depends what mindset they're in. Like another thing that I suggest is before sharing something like that with someone saying, hey, I'm going through a tough time would now be a good time to tell you about it and to ask for support and make sure that it is a good time because it, it isn't always. And to make sure that the person you're talking to is the right person to check in with about it. So there's that aspect of things. The boundary vulnerability to me is the real compass. And some of the suggestions I give is if you're going to talk to your colleagues about something you're struggling with, you should ask yourself a few questions. Firstly, you should check in about whether they are in a position to give you the support that you're looking for. And then second of all, you should make sure that if they don't meet you the way that you hoped they would, that you will still feel okay. Like if I were to unload on a colleague and they were to say, oh, okay, well, thanks for telling me about that and moved on. If that's going to leave me feeling really dropped, then they're probably not the right person to be speaking with because it's not actually their responsibility to catch me or to clean up the puddle that I might become when I'm really leaning toward all of my vulnerability. So I recommend that people think about that. What I try to speak to is the importance of leaders creating a container at work such that colleagues are not actually responsible for each other's mental health struggles. And that's one thing I've really respected about working with NBC Universal is they're working really hard to make sure that, for example, the policies walk the walk. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we care about mental health here, but it's another thing to allow mental health days to make sure insurance covers therapy in some way, shape, or form, to make sure that HR has resources to send people to when they come looking for support, things like that. And that's really, I think, a company's responsibility. I don't actually think it's any one colleague's responsibility to support everyone else's mental health. Rather, it's the leader's job to set up a space where people can get the help that they needed outside of work so that they can show up as their best selves inside of work. I like that. Jimmy, something that you said in an article I read really stuck with me. You you talked about how, you know, the creative people get a little more leeway <laughs> to be... <laughs> to be who they really are. Yeah. I think a lot of us can sort of relate, but there's this expectation of being a straight-laced business person, right? Like you don't ha you don't have feelings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also you're dealing with purse strings and money and I would imagine mm -hmm. many many millions of dollars. How would you talk to quote business and money people out there who are who are feeling this really sense of will people trust me? You're right. I mean that's the barrier, right? And that's the the thing where, you know, a lot of the a lot of the input I've gotten in the, you know, the outreach has been, I didn't think you could be you mm. and have these challenges. You can't be a successful business person. You can't move through the parts of your career and have personal challenges. And 
I'm certainly proof, and I believe that there are many others like me, that that's just not true, that we all have challenges. And of course, again, as we had said earlier, I think how you deal with them is important and how you conduct yourself. And I think, you know, being professional, even in spite of those things is, is paramount um, at all, at all times. But I think what's, what's happened, and again, these are some of the, I would say, silver linings of the last few years is there was a time, I think, in the business world. And certainly I would say my own experience, you know, having been, as I said, at the company for 30 years, being compassionate and being thoughtful and mindful and the things that Emily talked about in terms of emotional intelligence and what leaders should think about, I just don't think are things that people really thought about, prioritized, or actually valued. And so it was just how hard did you work? How tough were you? And certainly in my side of the business, it's certainly, you know, it's important to be respected. And I think that there was a sense of if you showed vulnerability, that maybe that would have an impact negatively on how you were respected at work and by your by your managers. And I think where we've moved is to a place where you can be both. You can be serious, you can be hardworking, you can be tough, you can be determined and ambitious and all those things. And you can be vulnerable and you can be compassionate towards yourself, towards other people. And I think that's the balance that we're looking to achieve here and I do believe that our leadership respects that and endorses it. And I think that's a really important thing for people in leadership to be able to express to their workforce, because I don't think that people really believe that. And especially a bigger, the bigger your company is, I think, you know, people traditionally think of it as less personal and less thoughtful and all those things that I think now make you better at your job make you more approachable, make you more. And for me, I think I've learned through my own experience that vulnerability does not have, it's not, it doesn't have to be a weakness. And now I think people, I think I was respected before. I have to say, I don't think it's changed in a negative way. I think in some ways it's almost changed for the better because this is who I am. And I think people now see me for who I am and that's what I think all of us should strive for. It makes me think of a concept I talk about a lot, which is the idea that a quote unquote perfect parent does not prepare their child for an imperfect world. And similarly, a perfect leader who has no vulnerabilities and nothing they're struggling with and who never makes mistakes, they're really not preparing their team which is inevitably a team full of humans who do have vulnerabilities and struggles <laughs> and mistakes to deal with those things. And it's actually a lot better for a leader to say, hey, here is how I'm confronting these things. And you have the permission to do that too. That's a lot more helpful than being this beacon of perfection that's not really attainable. Right. And also, how are people, you know, when the company as a lot of companies are now saying, we care about your mental health, we want to support you. If leaders never show their underbelly, how are we supposed to expect people to come forward? You know, it's, it's, it doesn't work. The do as I say, not as I do mentality around this really doesn't work because the ethos of a company is being set by leaders and mental health care and working on our mental health is already so tough and so vulnerable that we actually will find reasons why we shouldn't prioritize it. 
And thinking that it's not a safe thing to do at work will become a really great reason not to prioritize it. And so leaders are doing people a huge favor by taking away that barrier to entry and saying, hey, this is your own journey. You have to do it on your own time. But certainly thinking it's not a safe thing to do because you work here shouldn't be one of the reasons that you don't move forward with it. There's so much power in in leaders who haven't experienced what I have making this a priority and finding their their way to expressing that they respect vulnerability and compassion as part of a a more well-rounded workplace because I think once people hear my story I think that it makes sense of course I mean how could I not be thoughtful and compassionate towards someone who is having their own struggles it's the people who haven't who are leaders who understand what's going on in their workplace who find the ability to, as, as Emily was just describing, there is no version of perfection for any of us. And I think in a way we need those allies who recognize the fact that this is what's happening. This is, go- this is going on throughout our company and I'm sure most. And by having leaders who haven't experienced it personally, I know we always find as we have these conversations that more people than you could ever imagine either have experienced it themselves or know someone who has or have a relative who has or a child. Oh, yeah. And so with those conversations, of course, there's a connection. And so there's a much easier way in. It's for people who haven't done it. And I think that's really where it's, it's most important is for there to be an understanding. And only by normalizing it do I think we can get to a place where it doesn't feel so awkward the way it has for so long. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Jimmy, I have a specific question for you, but I'm dying to ask it. It's something I'm fascinated by. And Emily, feel free to chime in too. I would imagine that negotiating is a huge piece of your job, right? Like making deals. 99%. (laughs) How did your experience going through depression, being vulnerable, affect your negotiating? Like how does vulnerability play into being a negotiator? And and is it a positive? Like, has it given you any superpowers that you didn't think you noticed before? It's a great question, Mara. Really, it truly is a great question. I will tell you that I think for me, I've always been the same person. I don't think that what I went through changed me other than, yes, of course, I now come at things somewhat from a different place. But I've always thought of my responsibility as a negotiator to understand the person on the other end of the phone or on the other side of the the table. And what do they need from me? And what do I have to do to get the best outcome? I don't think that's something everyone does. And I don't think that's necessarily something that my 
uh, adversaries did. I think there are certain people who do, they approach every negotiation exactly the same way. Right. Killer. And I never, <laughs> killer, right? Killer or, you know, there are probably other versions, but sure, killer is the most obvious one. And I think my, you know, truth or, you know, North Star about, about negotiating is we are tough but fair. That's who I've always wanted to be. That's who I've always wanted my team to be. I think that way you get to the best outcome. And we're in a business that you repeat the negotiation with people all the time. It's very rarely one and done. And so you're not always going to have the leverage. And so if you're tough but fair, that other person, no matter how it, it turns out, will hopefully be respectful of the way you approached it. And then the next time when they have the leverage, they're going to use it. Of course, every good negotiator does. But hopefully it's going to be, a, there's going to be some benefit to us in the ongoing negotiation. So I think because that was my approach, I didn't really have to change it that much. But there's no question that in any situation that I'm in now, um, whether it's a negotiation or, or any other part of what I do in my role, I come at things from a place of compassion. And if someone's going through something and you can tell or if someone says they can't be on the phone because they have a family emergency, things that present themselves that way, I think it's better for everyone. And certainly it's my approach to be compassionate towards that because it could happen to you. And so even though for me, it probably didn't require that much of a pivot, I just think we, we all of us in the work that we're doing can come at it without having armor on from the get-go and to be a little bit more engaging with people just so you get a sense of like, who is this person and what are they bringing to this negotiation? What Jimmy's talking about makes me think of a really common misconception about empathy. I think a lot of people think empathy is just, you know, understanding what someone else is feeling. But really, if we intellectually understand what someone else is feeling, but we are not feeling it at all, that is not empathy. That's sympathy. <laughs> empathy means actually letting ourselves feel what someone else is feeling in order to understand them which is why anyone who's done their own work of getting more comfortable with their own feelings is going to do a better job empathizing with other people's because they can tolerate actually feeling those things. So Jimmy, I would imagine having gone through all of this and having made friends with your own messier parts, that it's a little easier to meet people and their vulnerabilities and thus understand them what they need and thus perhaps be better able to meet those needs and come out with an outcome that works well for everyone. I think that's 100% right. I am certain that I haven't given anything away in these past few years that was a result of what I went through. And in fact, as Emily said, that there is an ability when you have an understanding of what's going on. And yes, talent deals are one thing and financing deals are another thing. And But people come to it in a way where if they want to try and get something done, you never want anything that's happening for you to get in the way of getting the best outcome. Mm. And I just do think, just like I said earlier, the same way I believe we can be a better workplace by being more compassionate and more vulnerable, I believe the same is true for the more micro you know, aspect of what deal makers, for example, do or the people on my team. It's interesting. I've been told by HR that I'm not very approachable huh. at, at, in the workplace, that I come off as very tough and it's not easy to talk to me sometimes. And so what I've worked on is I want to model the behavior that we've been discussing and I don't always get it right. And I think that is sort of either the leftover of whatever my challenges have been, 
but I know that's not who I want to be. And so I have tried to let people know, and I think a lot of it is your role, your position, just by definition of who you are in the company, people have sometimes are, are hesitant to approach you. Certainly this work that we're doing, I would hope has made me more approachable, but in the heat of battle, in the moment when something's happening that's important, we all sometimes aren't are the best version of ourselves. I know that I'm not going to get the best out of my team if, if I'm not approachable. And so I've tried very hard to really, as part of this work, to let people know, I want to hear from them. Yeah. If I ever do something or say something that makes someone uncomfortable, if I ever come across as being unwilling to listen, I do want to know that. That doesn't mean that you're not, you shouldn't as a, as a leader and as a manager, let someone know when they've, they've let you down or when they've made a mistake. And I've always said mistakes happen. It's correcting them and not repeating the same mistake. Cause if you do that, then I think you're just not paying enough attention or you don't care enough. If you're smart enough to be here, I believe that you're smart enough to, to correct mistakes, not because we're, we all make them. But I do think it's an interesting aspect of, of how I'm approaching this work that I don't think in the past I would have been comfortable to have the conversation. I might have thought, well, I think that's their problem, huh. right? And I now know that it can't just be someone else, that I have to have some role in this and I have to be willing to look at it and be open about it and willing to have the conversation. There's no question that this work and our focus on mental health and my engagement with it has allowed people to see me very differently. Yeah. I'm going to ask you both a question that I get actually quite a bit from people, which is, how do I manage my boss when I can tell they're not doing great or when I can tell they're really anxious and taking it out on me or they're in a bad mood or, you know, something about their mental health feels off and I don't know what to do about how to work for them? Well, I think perhaps I would start with the idea that we have to accept the limitations of agency that we have over other people. And boundaries are the healthiest way to deal with the fact that we don't have control over anyone but ourselves. So I will say sometimes our only choice, if someone else is in a place that isn't working for us, is to decide what we want to do with ourselves about it. So I try to lead with that. That being said, I do think sometimes helping someone understand the impact that they're having on the people that they're responsible for can go a really long way. Like, Jimmy, I'd be really curious if someone during that time had come to you and said, hey, it seems like something might be going on with you. I'm not sure what it is, but I wanted to share that the impact is that I'm feeling a little less able to come to you with problems. And I just wanted to let you know that that's what's going on. I'm curious, would that have changed anything? Would that have allowed you to see what you were going through in a different way? I think it would have. And whether I would have been comfortable to share what I hadn't or whether it would have just allowed me to say a version of what you know we've discussed with you, which is I'm having a hard time or I'm going through something you know personal. I don't I would hope and I believe that I would have reacted to it in a way where I wouldn't have just denied it. And I would have found a way, I think, to, to just share as much as I needed to, to let that person know that I wasn't myself. And I do think that, you know, in response to your, to your question, Maura, I think a little bit 
The same way we hopefully, you know, deal with your partner or children. Sometimes you just need a minute. Sometimes you just need to take a step back and not react in the moment. And I think we can bring that to our, our work as well and let someone know it's just not a good time, but do it in a way that doesn't feel like they just messed up. Like they just like, oh God, like now I just like really stepped in it to let someone know like it's okay that they came to you, but to let them know it's just not a good time and you'll come to them when it is. I think that's hopefully part of the benefit of this normalization that we're trying to get to. It's part of how we speak to each other and how we, how we interact in a way. You know, I think something that we had talked about with Emily is before the pandemic, if you, I will say just for myself, you never left the office before your boss. It was just what, how it worked in big companies. It was not productive time. We missed being at home with our families. You just didn't leave. And I think that now part of this work has been everyone on my team knows if they're not home having dinner with their family, it's because of them. We are not asking them to sacrifice that. And we don't believe that doing that makes you better at your job. It doesn't make you a better person at home. And if you have to do work at home after your kids go to sleep, then that's a better version of doing your job and doing it well than the version that we used to have. And I think that that too led to a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety about like, is it okay for me to leave? And that's something that I think too is a byproduct of work from home, of course, but it's also a byproduct of this work of recognizing what do people need to, to find that work-life balance that so many of us have struggled with over our lives. Mm. So my last question for both of you is to zoom out and ask, how do you know what you're doing in terms of investing in mental health, in terms of making it a pillar of your DEIB program? How are you going to know it's working? It's probably the single biggest challenge in this work, because as we've said, there isn't a go to your boss, tell them you're having a struggle, and they're going to send you someplace and 30 days later, you're going to come back and you're going to be better. Right. And you're going and, to check a box saying, oh, that right. person disclosed. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I think, and also because as we, as we all know, there are so much, there's so many issues of privacy surrounding this. What I would say is that you get a sense of how people are engaging with each other. Emily and I have done a bunch of webinars, the number of people who have participated, the number of people who have gone into the chat during it, the kinds of outreach we get afterwards, what I'm hearing from HR when we have our wellness weeks or months, the way that people engage. I know that, as Emily said earlier, it's on us to make sure resources are available. I know people are using those resources without knowing anything uh, specific about who it is. And I think by seeing the engagement across the company is the best way. We know people, and when we do surveys, we know people are responding to this, appreciating it, sharing how meaningful it is to them. And for me, there is a sense when we're in the office, in the way people are engaging and in the way people are connecting, that it's happening. And again, the, the best way I can describe it is normalizing it in a way where it doesn't have to be so taboo and where you don't have to feel shame about it. I just can feel it. And and I guess it's, it is more anecdotal, but I know from the engagement and the work that we've done, how many people participate, but then there is a sixth sense about it 
that it's starting to make a difference. And I think it is, it's a long road. There's no question about it. It's starting from scratch, really. And we've been at it, you know, for really only, only a couple of years. Um, and that's the best way I can describe it. Something that Jimmy and his whole amazing team at NBC Universal did was I think they realized, hey, we should probably bring in a professional to support us with this initiative. And that's something I think companies don't necessarily do enough. How to hold a safe space for people to lean toward this is a complicated thing. And I felt really honored and grateful to be brought in to help facilitate that kind of space. And there's something really important that's being communicated to the community too of, hey, we value this enough to make sure that it's being done in a really thoughtful way. So I thought that that went really far. I appreciate what Jimmy was speaking to about just this sense, because although there is some quantitative aspects to all of this, to me in the 18 years that I've been doing this, it actually feels a little more like an art than a science. There is something that feels almost magical about it. When I think about people working on their mental health, what I often hear is they say, you know, I don't know when things changed. I just looked up one day and realized that my relationships were healthier and that I was talking to myself with a kinder voice and that I felt more purpose in what I was doing. And I couldn't really tell you exactly when that happened. And that's the truth of emotional fitness. It is not all at once. It happens almost in this undercover kind of way. And I think what's important and what's starting to happen is people are realizing that you kind of have to trust the process and trust the long game and trust that healthy leaders equal healthy returns. And that if you're willing to invest in this, it will pay off. It just might not happen extremely quickly or in a way that is so quantifiable that you can put it down in numbers on paper. Um, but it's very cool to hear Jimmy say that he can just feel it. And that's what I'm seeing in all of the organizations that have decided to put their resources toward this kind of initiative. You're, you're reminding me, this is so silly, but you know, when I started at like a weightlifting routine and then one day I just saw my tricep muscle. <laughs> I was like, I have a tricep. <laughs> That's awesome. Exactly. Which is why when, when Emily says emotional fitness, it feels so much better. You know, that's really, and that's, that's a big part of it, just talking about it in those positive terms, working on your emotional fitness, you know, the same way you go and you look at how you felt, you saw some results. And I think that's part of it too, is recognizing that it's doing work that leads to a, a better self. And wherever you start from those little wins, whether it's the way you just described it, or it's someone just telling me that someone on their team shared with them and they don't think they would have if we hadn't started to do this. It's very powerful. Mm. Well, Jimmy, Emily, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.